And now we pray as we come to your word, as we consider the things that Jesus said in these parables that we're considering in these this week and next week, grant us your blessing that we might grow in our understanding of the things, that we might hear what Jesus says and be prepared for his coming and also be fruitful in our lives. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, we've been working our way through Matthew chapter 24 and 25, having looked last week at the parable of the ten bridesmaids. And we're trying to get a perspective on what Jesus taught that we should expect about his second coming. And if we've seen anything in these last few weeks, we've seen this point being made over and over again. Be ready. Be prepared. For the main point of the parables that he tells us in relation to that theme in chapter 25 is to point out the multifaceted aspect of that need for preparation. All to do with the fact that as his disciples, we do not know the day or the hour of his coming. And not knowing means that everything is on the line. Jesus has been speaking to those who call themselves his disciples and been reminding them that like the bridesmaids waiting for the bridegroom, the need to be ready when he comes is paramount. And then in the verses this morning, the passage we'll be studying together from chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, the message is likewise concerned with life between the departure of Christ and this expected return. The focus is on how disciples who profess to be followers of his should live in the light of his coming return. In our story, in the parable, Jesus is clearly the master of the house who has gone on a trip. He's gone away. That is, he has ascended. He has risen from the grave and he's gone from our sight. And the servants who work in the master's house are the disciples, you and me. Unlike the previous parable, however, the message of the parable is the tal- of the talents is not simply be prepared, but be productive, be fruitful. It's not just get ready, it's be busy. It's not just merely watch, it's also work. The point is not just to summon us to readiness to whenever Jesus finally returns, but motivate us to fruitfulness in his service while we wait for him to return. And I want you to note the three ways in this parable that Jesus motivates us to a life of fruitfulness. First, we're called to remember the riches of gospel privilege. We glean this from verses 14 and 15, where Jesus speaks of a man going on a journey, who calls his servants and entrusts to them his property. To one he gives five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. This is not a particularly unusual picture for the ancient world. 
And Jesus speaks of a master of a great house who did what was common. He went away and he had what was common. He had workers, he had slaves. That's what the word translated here, servants, really means. And it's important that we grasp that because the message of the parable depends on us seeing that point. The man owns slaves. He doesn't hire workers. He doesn't hire servants. The slaves are his. They owe him diligence and faithfulness because they belong to him. They have an obligation to him. They're not hired workers. They are own slaves and they have duties and obligations that would have been spelled out in their conditions of employment, not necessarily. They're not unionised labourers who have negotiated a contract as per these days. They are slaves. They have no say. Now in Jesus' day, household slaves are often highly educated and skilled, some even more so than their masters. They were trusted to manage the estates and oversee the master's business interests so that faithful slaves were often paid well and able to purchase their own freedom. So too we find in this parable that the master knows the respected capabilities of these various slaves and divides his wealth between them in accordance with those abilities. To one he gives five, to the second two to the third one. What does he give them? The English word talent here is in our text is unfortunate as a translation. We tend to think of talents in terms of abilities. But Jesus is not saying here that before he went on a journey, the master taught one slave how to play the, play the banjo or another the art of origami. It's actually an amount of money. It's a huge amount of money. It's 20 years worth of wages is one talent. 20 years worth of wages. Think about that in our terms. One talent, 20 years worth of wages. Five talents, 100 years worth of wages. There's a debate about whether this was given in cash, it was given in silver or in gold, but either way it's a huge sum, it's a staggering amount of money to entrust to a slave. 20 years pay for one, 100 years pay for five. Even the slave to whom only one talent was given, he still had an enormous amount of money. And with the giving of this money are clear instructions. The master expects a return on the investment. Now jumping from then to now and to us, can you see here, can you draw the line to see a fairly stunning picture of the privileges given to us in the community of God's people, the church, what riches, what resources we've been given in Christ. Not only every spiritual blessing that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 1, not only an inheritance kept undefiled and unfading in heaven for you, says Peter in 1 Peter 1, 
not to mention the truth that if someone came from the poorest of nations to live with you, they would be staggered by what they would consider the abundance of wealth that we tend to take for granted. And I wonder if in the church that's also happened to us in relation to the great gospel riches and privileges we have. I wonder if we've stopped noticing how great they are, how big the riches are we have in Christ. Never has a master lavished such generosity upon his slaves as Christ has lavished upon the church. Think about the riches that you have the key to, the means of grace, the word of God, the ordinances of gospel worship, the prayers of the saints, the fellowship of the people of God, the oversight of the elders, the gospel of grace preached to us week after week after week. Within our master's house, we slaves enjoy immeasurable privileges. We have unimaginable riches. And the question becomes... What are you doing with them? What will you do with them? See, the master is seeking from all his servants an improvement or at least some interest from his many and varied gifts. Last week we thought about the possibility of affluence and wealth as being a danger and a hindrance to spiritual growth. What interest rate are you offering the Lord? Is it low? Is it in the days of 18% of pyramid? Remember that you have the riches of gospel privilege and take note that this parable calls you to be motivated and diligent in his service in the light of his return. Secondly, see here how Jesus tells us to embrace the promise of generous reward. Verses 16 to 23. The first slave with five talents or 20 years worth of wages immediately begins to trade with those resources and doubles his investment. The second slave does the same and after a long time the master comes back. Here is Jesus, by the way, preparing his disciples for the long delay between his resurrection and his return. And notice the work Jesus does when he comes back. He comes back, we're told, to settle accounts. He comes back to judge. And the judgment is focused here not on the world, but on the judgment that begins with his servants, with his slaves, the house of God, the family of God. Judgment begins with the family of God. It begins in here. It doesn't begin out there. His slaves are called and made to give an account. And when he receives from the report from the first two with their 100% profit margin, look at his reply in verse 20, which is repeated in verse 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. A little? Goodness me. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. Three parts to that remarkable reply. We could perhaps summarise them in three words. Commendation, 
promotion and communion. First of all, commendation. When Jesus comes back, he will say to his disciples, well done, good and faithful servants, good and faithful slaves, well done. I commend you to everyone who demonstrates they are good and faithful disciples who take the gospel investment and multiply it in faith in Christ and by diligence and obedience to his word and his will, over them he will pronounce, well done. Some people live to be people pleasers, whether these people are parents, peers, partners, and the fear of what people think can fill us with guilt, can take away our joy if you're a people pleaser. But as God's people, we need to remind ourselves that the smile of heaven is the only verdict worth shaping your life around. It's not that it's wrong to look for the approval of others, it's just that our target is set too low. If you live for the approval of others, it will be their standards that will shape you. But if you live for the praise of your master, it will be his demands that will shape you. And don't you long to hear the voice of the bridegroom from the last week's parable, the voice of the master from this week's parable, saying to you, pronouncing over you, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, for that day and oh, to hear those words. Then there's promotion. That was commendation. There's promotion. The master tells the two profitable slaves, you've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Over a little, Jesus says, but yes, still an extravagant sum of money. And yet compared to the reward for faithfulness, it is, says our master, but little. It's nothing compared to what's coming. It's nothing compared to the glory that's yet to be revealed in us and to us. When the master comes, we'll not, really, we'll not merely receive a word of commendation. We'll receive a word of promotion. Like those in the parable, we've not all been given the same amount to use. We each have unique opportunities. We each have privileges that vary. Our respective calling and the spheres within we much within which we work out our salvation are as varied as we are from one another. Our responsibilities to the Master are all not alike. But if we trust this gospel of grace, if we cling to Christ and in faith seek to be faithful to his calling in our lives, the little over which we have been given, and you might think you've only got a little, will end up much more. Jesus rewards faithfulness with greater responsibility. We will come to share in his lordship and his reign and his victory and his glory because he's a generous and a loving master. Commendation, promotion. The third word was communion. Enter into the joy of your master. What a wonderful thing this is. 
slaves entering the joy of their master. Slaves who are saying, what? The master wants me to sit at his level? Of all the blessings promised, maybe this is the greatest. The master himself, we're being told here, is full of joy over the faithfulness of the slaves. He loves them. He delights in their diligence in in his service. And now he invites them to share his joy. Come and sit at my table. It's an invitation to fellowship, to communion, as junior partners are lifted up and made to share in his wonderful grace. It's an invitation to share his own joy, to participate in the endless exchange of wealth that this master has access to. The metaphor of slaves and masters actually here now begin at last to disintegrate and the greater reality shines through to our future. Take this to heart, that if you'll be faithful in using and improving your gospel privileges. Your destiny is joyous fellowship with Jesus forever and mutual relationship with him in which he will delight in you. Do you get a little bit squeamish thinking about the rewards of heaven? I think we might fear that it somehow limits the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. How can salvation be a free gift and at the same time rewards be based on our faithfulness as we work in the household? It might help to remember that the work we do, the work we do is itself only the fruit of grace and the rewards we will enjoy far exceeds the merits of our best obedience so that they will also be gifts of grace. Faithfulness in gospel work will lead to glory work after. John Newton got it right, didn't he? What did he write? "'Tis grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. And we could add, and grace will supply more and more and more in heaven that we will receive." It's grace that calls us into the race. It's grace that sustains us. It's grace that makes us fruitful. And grace rewards our fruitfulness. So that the last we won't say, why did you reward me when it's all of grace? We will say, why do you reward me when my works are so poor? Why do you reward me when what I've done is so little? And he will say, the master will say, it's all of grace. And we will praise him and bow before him for his goodness to us again and again and again. Remember the riches of gospel privilege and embrace the promise of generous reward and labour hard for the smile of your master. But then thirdly, the parable takes a twist, doesn't it? Avoid the certainty of coming judgment. 
verses 24 to 30. In these verses we find that not all the slaves in the household were faithful. Not all the slaves were rewarded. The last of the three buried his one talent when the master left. When he came home, the slave only had the original deposit to return. And look at his reasoning. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here it is. Here's 20 years worth of wages. The servant's problem is that he did nothing with what he was given. And his inactivity stemmed from two things. His misunderstanding of the master and his own fear. Don't you think that his attitude to his master is how many people think about Jesus? Oh, Jesus, he's hard. He's judgmental. He's, he's overly restrictive. If you follow him, you'll have a life in chains. And don't you think too that his inaction is because of this fear he has of his master, a fear which is entirely misplaced? Look how generous the master has been. Look at the size of the riches he was given. This slave is an image of one who has the benefit of the great privileges of the gospel but has not been changed by it. He's made no return on the riches lavished upon him. Those who have never moved beyond seeing God as some evil taskmaster who calls all to give account of their stewardship and will judge so harshly that they would instead bury their gift. And so all this servant has to show when the master comes is just what he's been given. But there's no fruit. There's no profit. While he's lived like a slave in the master's house, he is at the last revealed as someone with no real interest in serving the master at all. And the master will look at what he says. You wicked and slothful servant, You knew where I reap, where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed. See, excuses won't do when the master comes home. A heart that reveres him works for him. A life that trusts Christ serves his cause. If there's no interest earned and the capital invested, we're revealed for the traitor's we actually are actually serving ourselves, not our master. And so in the end, the faithless slave is stripped of even the little that he enjoyed and he's cast out, out into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, you can surround your life with all the religion you like, read the best books sing the hymns of faith with gusto, taste the best preaching and educate yourself in the most rarefied theology. But if there is no fruit, get this point, if there is no fruit, there has been no faith. 
and there will be no future. If there is no fruit, there is nothing. If there is no profit, then no matter the privileges, there is no paradise. If there is no holiness, there is no heaven. Remember the riches of gospel privilege. Embrace the promise of generous reward and flee the certainty of coming wrath. I am persuaded and somewhat discomforted by the thought profited here by one commentator who says that hell will be populated by surprised churchgoers who thought themselves safe because they buried their talent until the master came back. So here's this second parable of Matthew 25. The first reminding us of the need to keep our lamps burning as we wait for the voice of the bridegroom. The second reminding us of the need to keep working hard with what the master has given you, which is nothing less than the riches of the gospel and everything else that bears your name. The great gospel privileges we've been given call us to rest from salvation by self-effort, but they do not call us to rest from labour full stop. We are not saved by good works, but we ought not be foolish enough to think that they are not needed. We heard this expressed briefly this way a few weeks back. I cannot work my soul to save that work my Lord has done, but I will work like any slave for love of God's dear Son. The Master wants to see profit from the riches he has put in your hands. You need to put it to work not only by believing the message he has given us, but showing yourselves to be good and faithful slaves. This doesn't mean that you have to sell all and go and serve God in the Congo. It may, of course, if God calls you to that. But it may mean this, changing your priorities in life, putting Christ's kingdom ahead of your kingdom, putting all your wealth under his lordship, getting up earlier to be at the prayer meeting, staying up later to be in touch with someone, either to tell them the gospel or encourage them in it, praying a little bit longer in the morning or the noon or the afternoon or the evening. It may mean phone calls, it may mean texts, it may mean letters, notes, visits, cards. It will mean dying to self and putting yourself second and others first. It will mean carrying your cross and devoting your time, your talents, your treasures to serving your master. First of all, as we've heard in these studies, the Lord Jesus is coming in a day and an hour you do not know. Will you have a return on his investment? What will you have to show when he calls your name 
and asks, how did you go with what I gave you? Remember what he wants is fruit. Will it be the case of you didn't use it, so you lose it? Let's pray about that and ask God for grace that we might be not ashamed when Jesus comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, with grateful thanks we come to you that you have given us such privileges. The table before us is set with a reminder of what those privileges are. Entry into your family through the death of your son This is not something given to everyone but we share it with all your people around the world and we rejoice in it but we would remember today it all comes at a cost not only the cost that Jesus paid but the cost that we are called to live out every day as we serve as we love, as we give, as we sing and as we will sing in a moment, take my life, take my silver and my gold. We are yours, Lord, from the very beginning. You made us to be yours. We're doubly yours because you saved us as well redeemed us and we're yours. Help us to remember that we are slaves. We have no rights. We owe you everything and nothing less will you be satisfied with. So help this to rest with us today. Help us to sit with it, to think about it, to pray over it, that our priorities might be reorganised and our lives might show the fruit that our Master seeks. We pray in his name. Amen.